You are listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast, an honest and non-judgmental discussion on faith in God and the doubts we often have, why it's sometimes difficult to trust God, and how we can know with a surety that He loves us. This show centers on strengthening and rebuilding our faith after loss, tragedy, or when coming to Christianity from a non-Christian or pseudo-Christian worldview. Now, here is your host, Gene Curl. Hello, and welcome back to Recovering Faith. Glad you joined me today. Today, is a, there's a couple of exciting things. Uh, first off, this is the last episode on problems with the Book of Mormon. Not that I've covered every single problem with the Book of Mormon, but that I've covered all the major ones. And so today's episode will cover the Book of... 4th Nephi through the Book of Moroni. And the other big exciting thing is, is that this is the 51st episode, so next episode will mark the one-year anniversary of this podcast. So I'm excited about that. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing for next episode, but I'm excited. And um, also, a friendly reminder, if you haven't already, please go by uh, iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you listen to this podcast at and uh, give it a five-star rating and a review. I'd greatly appreciate it and it would help other people to find the podcast. And also, uh, if you would like to comment on this episode or any other episode, you can go to genecurl.com and find the episode and then you can comment. So I'd love to hear from you. And with that, I'm going to get on with the episode. Um, as I said, this episode is going to cover 4th Nephi through the end of the Book of Mormon. And this one starts with 4th Nephi. Early on in, fourth, in the Book of 4th Nephi, in 4th Nephi 1.10, it says that the people were righteous and they became fair and delightsome, which we learned earlier in the Book of Mormon means that they were white. And the footnotes for this verse leads the reader to a few verses earlier in the book that explicitly says that they that when they became fair and light, it means that they turn white. Despite all the church has done to appear less racist, including giving the priesthood to black men during the civil rights movement, giving them leadership roles, and not saying anything about mixed race couples, the church can never disavow the Book of Mormon and its blatant racist teachings that white skin means righteousness and dark skin means that you are wicked because by throwing out the foundational book of the church they would be destroying the foundation of the church. Over and over again, leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have said that all a person would have to do is to prove the Book of Mormon to be false in order to prove the church false. But they view the book as unapproachable and will not listen to or will not listen to or critically examine any evidence that is brought forth against it. From my experience, people who want to believe in the Book of Mormon will easily discount any evidence brought against it, regardless of how credible that evidence is, because they don't want to allow it to cause doubt. The faithful who want to believe at any cost Follow the admonition of the president, Uchtdorf, who said, Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. When you're a member of the church, 
There is such a pressure by the leaders and other members to feel while others fail and to believe even the things in the church that are difficult to believe that a lot of people won't even admit to themselves that they are doubting. And I have certainly been there. When I first started investigating my doubts, I would not allow myself to believe that I was doubting, and I convinced myself that I was only investigating these things so that I could help those who were doubting and to defend the church. But really, it was for my own peace of mind. I reasoned that if the church were true, then it would stand up to inquiry, and I needed to know that my faith was not misplaced, which of course it was. The fourth book of Nephi can be summed up rather quickly. At first, all of the people, both the Lamanites and the Nephites, become righteous. But three centuries later, all of the people are wicked, and a man named Ammon hid the sacred writings and told Mormon where they were so that when, so that when he got to a certain age, uh, he could get them and finish writing the record. Fourth Nephi is only one chapter long, and it reads like Joseph Smith got tired of writing and just wanted to get it over with by summarizing hundreds of years. To me, the details of how a people could go from total righteousness to total wickedness in such a short amount of time would have been far more important and far more interesting than many of the things that were actually written in the Book of Mormon. Since there is some extremely boring, pointless, and otherwise unimportant details throughout the book, and yet the biggest transformation of people from being righteous to wicked is just skipped over. So I completely believe that's what happened. Joseph Smith and those in company just like, yeah, let's just skip it. We're tired of this. Of course, I could be wrong. The Book of Mormon starts with a massive war uh, and what I mean by the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon, so the Book of Mormon's title book, starts with a massive war where thousands are dying by the sword on both sides. And it goes into detail on how wicked everyone was. And it says that the Nephites were even more wicked than Lamanites. The crazy thing is that when the Lamanites became righteous earlier in the book, they were turned white. And now that they are sinning, their skin turned dark again. But the Nephites were not turned dark for their sin. First off, I don't in any way think that dark skin is a curse or a sign of wickedness. But it is clear that the Book of Mormon does. Yet the Nephites were not cursed, even though they were more wicked than the Lamanites. Keep in mind, the Book of Mormon teaches that the Lamanites are the principal ancestors of the American Indians, as we read Moroni 5.15, a verse about the Lamanites. And also, that the seed of this people may more fully believe his gospel, which shall go forth unto them from the Gentiles. For this people shall be scattered, and shall become a dark, a filthy, a loathsome people, beyond description of that which ever hath been among us, yea, even that which hath been among the Lamanites, and this because of their belief and idolatry. That verse basically says that the Lamanites will become a people who are so wicked that they are beyond anything that has been described in the book so far. And there have been some pretty horrendous things up to this point. The Lamanites supposedly became the American Indians, so the Book of Mormon has an absolutely horrible view of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. In the sixth chapter of Mormon, we read that the Nephites gathered all of their people together near the Hill Cumorah, which is in New York. 
and hundreds of thousands were slain, even to the utter destruction of the people, except for Mormon and his son Moroni, and I guess the three Nephites, which are probably around somewhere. At any rate, there were a lot of people killed in the same area, and since the book tells us that it was the hill Cumorah, and since that hill is the same hill where Mormon, or I mean Moroni, hid the gold plates and Joseph Smith dug them up from. When I visited Hill Cumorah last summer, I asked the visitor center if they had ever done any excavation, and they said that they had. I then asked them if they had ever found any evidence of a battle or anything else, and they said that they had not. And they also said that they don't have any plans to do any more excavation or any searches of any kind in the area. The reason the church doesn't plan to continue searching for evidence at Cumorah, I think, and the reason they won't allow anyone else to do so, is that they know there is no evidence to be found, and that it would cause people to doubt the church and the Book of Mormon. The seventh chapter of Mormon makes the claim that anyone who believes the Bible will also believe the Book of Mormon. But that's not even close to being true. There are multitudes of people who believe the Bible with every fiber of their being, and consider the Book of Mormon to be nothing more than a work of fiction written by Joseph Smith and company. In the next chapter, there is some self-prophecy about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, as well as no small amount of praise for Joseph Smith. And there's a setup for anyone who inevitably finds the many faults in the book, and it states that anyone who questions the book is in danger of going to hell. Moroni 8.17 says, And... If there be faults, they be the faults of man. But behold, we know no faults. Nevertheless, God knoweth all things. Therefore, he, can, he that condemneth, let him be aware, lest he shall be in danger of hell fire. Basically, this is saying that there are no faults, but if you happen to find any faults, they are the faults of man. And if you point out the obvious faults, then you're in danger of going to hell. If the Book of Mormon were truly inspired by and written with the power and authority of God, and if it were truly the most correct book on earth, then this verse would have been completely unnecessary. But the fact that it was included at all says a lot about the book, and what it says is not something good. Moroni 8.32 says, Yea, it shall come in a day... When there shall be churches built up, that shall say, Come unto me, and for your money you shall be forgiven of your sins. This is a verse that members of the church use often to criticize churches who have paid ministry. But this verse is not actually criticizing getting paid for ministry, but rather the sin of telling people that they can't be saved without giving money. The ironic thing is, is that most of the Christian churches... While they are staffed with people who are paid for their services, they don't make any claim that you have to give money to be saved, but the Mormon church does. According to LDS theology, in order to be saved in the highest heaven, a person has to attend the temple, and one of the things a person must do in order to be considered worthy enough to go to the temple is to pay a full 10% of his or her income to the church. There is no other way to say it other than the LDS Church teaches that you can't be saved unless you give them your money, which is something the Book of Mormon condemns. 
with all of the rapid fire changes to uh, into the church lately, I think uh, Mormon nine nine through ten are relevant verses because if God never changes, then there is no justification for all the major changes in the church now and in the past. For do we not read that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And in him there is no variableness, neither shadow of changing. And now, if you have imagined up unto yourselves a God who doth vary, and in whom there is a shadow of changing, then have ye imagined up unto yourselves a God who is not a God of miracles. So yeah, that's as saying that God doesn't change, and yet the church has changed a lot. The last issue I will address in the Book of Mormon's title book, and it's a big issue, is the claim that the book was written in Egyptian because there wasn't enough room to write it in Hebrew. But if there had been enough room to write in Hebrew, then there would have been no errors. The problem with this is that Egyptian takes up significantly more real estate than does Hebrew. But Joseph Smith and company were apparently ignorant of both Hebrew and Egyptian during the writing process of the Book of Mormon. And if you go to my website, genecurl.com, and you uh, look at this episode, I have an illustration uh, that I made. I took the shortest verse in the Book of Mormon, which is 1 Nephi 2.15, which reads, And my father dwelt in a tent. Using Google Translate, I translated it into Hebrew and put it below it. And then below that, I translated it into Egyptian using a translation tool from uh, one of the uh, universities that has an Egyptian program. And I put them all right above one another, the English one, the, uh, then the Hebrew, and then the Egyptian. And the Egyptian takes up significantly more room than the rest of them, and the Hebrew takes up far less space. So to say that they didn't write it in Hebrew because there wasn't enough room, so they wrote it in Egyptian instead, is ridiculous. And uh, the verses that talks about that are Mormon 9, 32, and 33. And they say, And now, behold, we have written this record according to our knowledge in the characters which are called among us the Reformed Egyptian, being handed down and altered by us according to our manner of speech. And if our plates had been sufficiently large, we should have written in Hebrew. But the Hebrew hath been altered by us also. And if we could have written in Hebrew, behold, ye would have had no imperfections in our record. Basically, I think the reason that was put in is kind of a cop-out for any inevitable errors that you will find. We next go to the Book of Ether, which, you, if you recall earlier in the Book of Mormon, it's the 24 plates that the people of Limhi found while they were trying to get back to the rest of the Nephites. And it's the history of the people called the Jaredites, who left the Holy Land around the time of the Tower of Babel. And, of course, they sailed to the Americas, just like uh, Lehi and his family, but by uh, different kind of boats. Uh, there's a lot going on in the Book of Ether, and most of it's interesting, at least compared to the rest of the Book of Mormon. But I'm only going to focus on some of the most egregious errors. In the first chapter of Ether, it talks about America as a land that is choice above all other lands. And while I'm about as American as you can get, I have to be honest in saying that nowhere in the Bible does it uh, so much as mention America, much less call it the most choice land. 
The Book of Mormon was obviously written by an American from an American perspective. All through the Book of Ether, as well as the rest of the Book of Mormon, there are numerous verses peppered throughout that praise America as the best land on earth. As a proud American, I think that America is the best, but not because of the land. I think America is the greatest because of all the freedoms we enjoy here that are not afforded to other parts of the world. Though our liberties are slowly being chipped away to resemble what the Founding Fathers fought against in the first place, but that's a discussion for another place in time. A quick overview of the catalyst that gets us people from the Holy Land to the Americas is when the languages were all mixed up and Jared and his brother, referred to as the brother of Jared, um, he had him to ask God not to confound their languages or that of their family or their friends. Supposedly, the Jaredites spoke the original language that Adam and Eve spoke when they were first created by God in the Garden of Eden, which Joseph Smith taught was in Missouri, which is a story for another episode. Shortly after all of the languages were mixed up, Jared and his group were led out of the area where they were in, and they set out into the wilderness. And... One of the most ridiculous things that it says they did is to put fish into barrels and take them with them, as well as swarms of bees. I used to really be into aquariums, and in order for fish to remain healthy, you must have a minimum of one gallon of water per inch of fish. So if you had 23 inch fish, you would need 60 gallons of water, and so forth and so on. It's a really silly idea when you think of it. People leaving for a new land and taking fish with them instead of being happy with whatever fish were in their new area. Despite the fact that the Book of Ether, as well as the Book of First Nephi, has people bringing honeybees to the Americas, there is absolutely no proof that honeybees were in the Americas before the Europeans brought them over. There are bees that are native to the Americas, but none of the native species produce honey. In the second chapter of Ether, God has the people to build eight football-shaped barges and describes them as being the length of a tree. And these barges were completely watertight and airtight when the door was shut. The brother of Jared noticed an obvious design flaw that would prove fatal. Uh, and that flaw was that there is no way to get fresh air into the vessels. So he went to God and asked what to do. God had the brother of Jared to make a hole in the top and a hole in the bottom of each barge so that whichever side was up at the time could be unstopped to provide air, and that's in verse 20. Which would suggest that the barges would roll over from time to time. Keep in mind that the barges were to be filled with people, animals, bees, and barrels of fish, and enough food and fresh water for the people and the animals for the duration of the 344-day trip. If there are only small holes in the top and bottom for air, then there is no practical way to get rid of all the human and animal waste. And with the barges bouncing around and rolling over, the interior of the barges would have been repulsively disgusting and smelly places, and everything would have been covered with urine and feces, including the food. Under those circumstances, the biggest miracle would have been that a single person or animal survived the trip. 
Many people have been compelled to commit suicide under far more pleasant circumstances. I also have to point out how ridiculous it is that the barges were being pushed by, as the uh, Book of Ether says, by a fierce wind, and it took them 344 days to make the trip, when a sailboat can make the trip in around 30 days, depending on the ship, and sometimes a lot less. This supposed fierce wind brought the Jaredite barges to America. It took over 10 times as long as a sailboat would have taken to make the trip. Their brother of Jared also complained about the darkness inside of the barges and brought 16 stones to the top of the mountain and had God uh, to touch them to make them glow so that they would have two glowing stones for each barge. Uh, once I get to the Americas, it never says what happened to these stones after that. So, One of the major problems with the Book of Ether is that there are wars so soon after the people came to the Americas. And while there are no dates given, it reads like it was only a few generations. So there would not have been enough people to have war even if they were breeding like rabbits. Because remember, there were eight small barges that not only had to fit people, but flocks uh, of uh, animals and flocks and herds of animals. So there was lots of animals plus fish in barrels. And so there couldn't have been that many people. And then once they come to America, after a few generations, they're having wars. That's just not feasible, not possible at all. In Ether chapter 7, a man named Korihor rebels against his father and leads the people astray. And Korihor's children, it says in verse 4, were exceedingly fair. I've never understood why the Book of Mormon would have God curse just one group of people, the Lamanites, with dark skin. And again, I don't think dark skin is a curse or a bad thing, uh, but the Book of Mormon does. So I don't understand why the why it would have God cursing one group of people, the Lamanites, for with a curse, but... Uh, everybody else would get a free pass of sinning without any kind of curse being placed upon them. The God of Mormonism, which is altogether different from the God of the Bible, is completely unfair in his judgments. In Ether 8.19, it says that God does not work in secret combinations, which is interesting since the LDS Church is so secret about the goings-on in the temple. In the Bible, in John 18:20, Jesus said that he did nothing in secret, but revealed everything publicly. And in the Book of Mormon, in Helaman 2:13, it says that secret combinations almost destroyed the entire people of Nephi. So there is no real reason to keep the temple secret other than to keep outsiders from knowing how incredibly strange some of it is. In the Book of Ether, there are a lot of things mentioned such as silk, steel, horses, cattle, and crops, such as wheat and barley, that are out of place in the Americas during this time period, which is, was approximately 2197 B.C. to 550 B.C. But as most of them have already been addressed in earlier episodes, I will gloss over them and focus on the ones that are new additions. Ether 919 mentions a few things that are new additions to the out-of-place animals in the Americas, and a few of them sound made up. And they also had horses, and asses, and there were elephants, and curloms, and kamoms, 
all of which were useful unto man, and more especially the elephants and the curloms and the cumoms. Some LDS apologists, knowing that elephants were never indigenous to the Americas and that there has never been any evidence that anyone anciently brought them over, claim that Ether was talking about the woolly mammoths. But archaeological evidence has them all going extinct by 1650 B.C., and the Jaredites did not arrive on the scene until nearly 600 years later. Ether 10.5 is yet another of the verses in the book of in the book that Joseph Smith said was the most correct book on earth that condemns polygamy. And it says, And it came to pass that Replikish did not do that which was right in the sight of the Lord, for he did have many wives and concubines. From the first time I read the Book of Mormon, I've thought that Ether 12.12 was problematic because it says that God can do no miracles because of the unbelief of the people. As if God is somehow bound and can only do things if we believe he can do them. God doesn't need our permission or our faith to do things. We just don't recognize them as miracles if we don't have faith. And yes, God is less likely to help us out if we don't have faith, but he's not bound by it. The relevant part of the verse reads, For if there be no faith among the children of men, God can do no miracles among them. There are examples throughout the Bible of God doing uh, mighty miracles when people did not believe, and there are some in the Book of Mormon as well, including an angel appearing to Alma to straighten him out uh, when he was fighting against the church his father set up. Ether 12, 23-26 is another section of verses designed to discourage people from questioning or criticizing the Book of Mormon. The reasons that, that there are so many verses like that is because the Book of Mormon is aware of its own flaws and knows that people will notice those flaws. And this is a way to try and discourage that. I don't think it's working. And, those who, and to those who doubt the book, verses like those read like the threats of one kindergarten uh, boy to another, saying that if he lets a sister into his blanket for it, that the monsters will eat them. It isn't really important, but I feel the need to mention either 14, 18, as I think it's the best verse in the entire work of the Book of Mormon, because it's funny. And it says, And there went a fair of shiz throughout all the land. Yea, a cry went forth throughout the land. And who can stand before the army of shiz? A uh, funny little side note, when I was going on my mission and they asked me, uh, First, some suggestions on which verses I would like to be put on my mission plaque. Uh, that was one of the verses that I suggested, and they re outright rejected it and told me I had to put something about missionary work, so I was a little disappointed because I thought that would have been funny. Anyhow, the rest of the Book of Ether can be summed up by saying that there were continuous wars until it was down to two men, the two kings. And it says in Ether... 15.2, that millions of people were slain. The final battle ends with the two kings, who are the last two Jaredites alive, with the exception of Ether, who was writing it all down, fighting it out to the end. And it came to pass that when they had fallen by the sword, save it were Curiantimer and Shiz, behold, Shiz had fainted with the loss of blood. And it came to pass that that when Coriantumr had leaned upon his sword, 
that he rested a little, he smote off the head of Shiz. And it came to pass that after he had spitten off the head of Shiz, that Shiz raised up on his hands and fell. And after that he had struggled for breath, he died. And it came to pass that Kuriantumur fell to the earth and became as if he had no life. And that was Ether 15, 29-32. Not saying that, could, that could, it couldn't be possible, but I think, statistically speaking, the odds that two people groups would fight down to the last man, making themselves extinct instead of one side surrendering, is so close to zero that it might as well be zero. Also, I'm not a doctor, but it sounds pretty impossible for a person without a head to struggle for breath. Now moving on to the Book of Moroni, the very last book in the Book of Mormon. The first issue worth mentioning is that Moroni chapter 2 gives the wording for the laying on of hands for the Holy Ghost, and the wording differs from the official wording the church uses today. The ordination to the priesthood offices in Moroni 3 also differs from the official wording. Moroni 6.4 says that we are to rely alone upon the merits of Christ, yet the church teaches that we have to work out our own salvation and that it is our works and our merits that determine whether or not we are saved. Moroni 7.6 says that someone who is evil can't do anything good. But that's not true, as no one is all good and no one is all bad. Bad people do some good things, even if it's only to, because it benefits themselves. And good people do some bad things. Moroni 8.18 says that the law of circumcision is done away with, yet the practice of circumcision is widespread within the church, and practically all LDS families circumcise their sons. Moroni 8.18 23 speaks poorly of putting faith in dead works instead of the merits of Christ. Yet, the church as it is today is all about works, and even teaches that a person can't be saved without doing specific works, such as temple ordinances. In Moroni, chapter 10, is the chapter that all missionaries are taught to have people who are investigating the church to read because it's the promise by Moroni, that if a person reads the Book of Mormon and prays about it with real intent, that God will reveal the truthfulness of it to them. There are a lot of problems with this, and one of the biggest problems is that we should not determine truth by how we feel about something, as our feelings are often wrong, and the, and the Bible says in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is deceitful above all things. So it is clearly a bad idea to base our entire life and our salvation upon a feeling. The church teaches that we get a good feeling about the book, like a burning in the bosom, and that that'll say that it's of God. But a lot of things, ranging from a good meal to a movie or a glass of wine, can give us that feeling. And that in no way means that God is sending the Holy Ghost to tell us that those things are good or that those things are uh, true or whatever else. And so relying on a feeling is ridiculous. Another major problem with this is that if a person prays and gets a feeling that the Book of Mormon and the church are not true, then they are told that the answer is not of God and that they should pray again. So basically, the church tells people that if they get the, that if they get the answer that they, the church, wants them to, it is of God. 
and that any, any, and that any other answer is of the devil. If it's that easy for the devil to deceive us with a filling, then there is no logical reason to believe the church or anything else based on a filling. Also, more often than not, when someone tells you that their way is the only way, then they are trying to deceive you. The method the church uses to get people to believe in the church and its book is similar to the method that an abusive boyfriend may use to get a woman to stay in a relationship. Moroni 10, 7 and verse 19 says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he never changes. So if God never changes, and Joseph Smith restored the church to the way it was when Jesus himself set it up, then there is no reason nor justification for any doctrinal changes or changes to ordinances. Moroni 10.26 says, And woe unto them who shall do these things away and die, for they die in their sins, and they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. And I speak it according to the words of Christ, and I lie not. This is one of the many verses that shows there is no salvation after death, despite the church's teachings about works and ordinances for the dead. Moroni 10.32 says, Yea, come unto Christ, and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, ye can no wise deny the power of God. The huge problem with Moroni 10.32 is that it gives us a list of things that we must do in order for the grace of God to be sufficient for us. But the grace of God is sufficient with or without our works. The only thing that we add to salvation is the sin that made it necessary in the first place. By saying that we have to do specific things in order to qualify or merit grace is to deny grace because, by definition, grace is unmerited. 2 Corinthians 12.9, as well as practically the entire book of Romans, teaches us that we are not saved by grace and not by anything we can do, but that God's grace is sufficient. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. We don't have to do anything to qualify for the grace of God. The grace of God is unmerited. And yes, God wants us to change our lives because of him, but we don't have to earn or buy his grace. This is the, this is the concluding episode on the problems of the Book of Mormon. And no, this is not going to be the last episode uh, dealing with issues in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church. Uh, this is just the last one on the Book of Mormon. And so I'm not sure what the next one in this series on Mormonism is going to be. Um, and so, yeah, we'll figure it out. And next episode is going to be the 52nd episode, which will be the one-year anniversary. So I'm excited for that. Thanks for listening. I hope this was educational and informative. And if you know anybody that uh, is investigating the church, the Mormon church or anybody who is in the church, that this may help them 
or if you know somebody who's trying to help somebody that's in the church, if you would share this with them, that would this or uh, other episodes, it would that would help. That would be great. So share away. And again, thanks for listening. God bless, and I hope you tune in next time. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast. Please rate and review this show and share it with your friends and family. You are loved.